anybody know what short code is? Familiar with the term short code? Yeah. So a long, long time ago when, you know, when I was a wee lad and the internet was first like a thing, um, uh, all the websites were written in pretty basic code, right? And as we learned how to do more nuanced things on the internet, that code became more and more complicated, right? And then it became so complicated that it was cumbersome. Pages upon pages upon pages of code to do something relatively simple. And then developers created short code. Now, short code is interesting because short code teaches computers to reference this whole body of knowledge. And when you're, when you're drafting a website in short code, all you have to do is put like this little blip, a uh, combination of letters and numbers. And, and just from recognizing that blip of combination, that combination of letters and numbers, um, the, the computer knows to reference this huge body of knowledge, right? So that... Uh, a website, say you just navigate to, you know, uh, CNN or Fox News or, or uh, Google, uh, if you looked at the, the code behind that website, it would maybe take two pages. But if you looked at the reference behind that code, if you follow the short code to the actual body of knowledge that's being referenced by the short code, that document would probably be something like 50, 75, 100 pages, 200 pages. Short code's an interesting concept because we actually have something similar in, in every culture, every society, every language has a short code. Here's what I mean. There are terms that mean more than merely the terms themselves. I'm thinking of things like bear market or cold war or traditional family. Right? You say these, you drop these in a sentence or in a conversation. And assuming that the, the, uh, the person you're talking to grew up in the same culture, understands the reference, you've just, by using those two words, you've just brought depth and weight to your sentence, right? to your conversation. All of a sudden, uh, what you've communicated is huge. Now, if you were to footnote... Like, say you just manuscript or transcript this conversation. If you were to footnote and explain from the beginning to the end exactly what you meant by this term bear market or this term cold war or this term traditional family, the footnote would easily be five, six times the length of the actual conversation, right? You've just used short code or shorthand. Now, the reason I bring this up is because last week we read the first sentence of Matthew. And, and I argued last week that that sentence was loaded with short code. Right? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is short code for basically the entire Old Testament. You, you following me? And so we got into, we spent some time studying the first two-thirds of this sentence. Uh, and so I just want to 
read the sentence to you, and then we're, we're just going to sort of uh, resituate ourselves around the, the, a, a brief version of what this sentence is communicating, okay? So, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what we argued last week was that these words mean something huge. Matthew is making a claim about Jesus that is groundbreaking. What he's suggesting is that a new creation is coming. Through Jesus, who is the promised king of Israel, and he has all the legal rights of David's royal line, and, and, and through him, the whole world will be saved, right? And when I, when I mentioned this last bit to you, I said this is a sneak preview. All we're going to do today is we're going to talk about this term, son of Abraham, and what it means. Why would Matthew just randomly, obviously he's the son of Abraham if he's the son of David, right? David was the son of Abraham. Why, why mention that? It seems redundant. It's not redundant because son of Abraham is short code for a brilliant and massive statement about the nature and character of Christ's work. So what we're going to do is we're going to revolve around that statement, son of Abraham. And here's my claim. I'm going to make the claim that Matthew includes these final words, the son of Abraham, to highlight that the work of the coming king would not terminate exclusively on the people of Israel, but would stretch to the nations and would change the world. I'm not exaggerating here. I think Matthew intends for you to see that in the use of the term son of Abraham. Now, before we start uh, uh, justifying that claim, I want to I give a little background knowledge in case you're unfamiliar with the scriptures. Right? Israel was distinct from the nations. And here's what I mean. The Old Testament revolves around the history of Israel and the covenant that God made with Israel. Now, what you need to know is that the Old Covenant was a pact between God and Israel, one single people group, okay? It was, it was a covenant between God and His chosen people, namely Israel, the Hebrews, okay? Now, although the covenant makes a place for believing Gentiles and sojourners within this covenant, they were the rare exception. Don't transfer your understanding of the new covenant on the old covenant. The old covenant was exclusively between God and Israel. And though there was a place made for believing Gentiles and believing sojourners, they weren't the point of the covenant. Does it make sense? You follow me? And this, this helps me digest this dichotomy. Missions and missionaries is a new covenant phenomenon. Okay? There were no missionaries in ancient Israel. Like, young men in ancient Israel aren't saying, well, I'm training to be a rabbi or I'm training to be a missionary. There's, missionary is, is not even a concept in the Old Covenant, right? However, I want you to turn with me to Genesis 12. Turn with me to Genesis 12. This is a big however. Even though the Old Covenant was directed exclusively toward Israel, from the very conception of the Old Covenant, from the very conception of God's promise to His people, there is a seed 
of hope for the nations. All right? There's a, there's a seed planted of hope for the nations. And that seed is planted in the promise made to Abraham. So turn to Genesis 12 with me, please. First book in the Bible. Starting verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you see it? You see that seed of hope? It's not, it's not just exclusively terminating on Abraham and his children, but, but somehow, we don't know much yet, but somehow in, G, in, in, in Abraham, uh, the whole world will be blessed. What, what does that mean? Well, we get a, l- a little bit more in Genesis 22. So turn with me to Genesis 22. Now, to give you some context... Um, I'm not going to read the whole story, um, but this is the story of the, of the sacrifice of Isaac is the subheading in Genesis. Isaac wasn't actually sacrificed, so I don't know. The almost sacrifice of Isaac, you could call it. Isaac is the promised son of Abraham. Abraham had no heir, and so for decades, he's looking at God who promised a, a, a whole... A whole uh, as many as the stars, as much as the sand will be your offspring. And he's like, I don't even have a son. Not one. Right? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I'm just trusting you here. And he's getting older and older. And his wife's getting older and older. And he has no heir. And he's confused. And he's talking to God about it. And God just keeps saying, trust me. Trust me. Finally, Isaac is born. By the miraculous work of God. And then Isaac grows up. And all of a sudden, all the promises of God seem to be coming to fruition, right? And then God says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, to the top of that mountain and sacrifice him to me. Right? That's big. It's a heavy ask, right? But we know that Abraham trusts God. And we know that he has faith that God has made a way. So he says, Isaac, get the wood. Let's go. He goes all the way to the top of that hill and he straps his son up. And he raises that dagger to slaughter his only beloved son. And this is the context in which the Lord speaks to him. He says, stop. Don't do it. And then he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, that's a little bit more in the actual promise. It's a little bit more than we had before. In Abraham turns to in your offspring, right? Well, how will Abraham 
bless the nations. Well, one of his sons is coming, and it's through that son that he will bless the nations. But don't forget the context. What is the context of this promise that his offspring would bless the nations? A father willing to surrender his only son in sacrifice to a holy God. Right? So if you're reading carefully, you're starting to make some connections. You don't have all the details yet. But this is the promise to Abraham. And all of a sudden, this theology of the offspring of Abraham and theology of the blessing of the nations begins to develop in the Old Testament. Right? It just grows and grows. So, what does the title Son of Abraham mean? Well, we know from Genesis 12 and 22 that the son of Abraham is the promised offspring of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we begin to get a peek of what that blessing looks like, right? So when Matthew claims that Jesus is the son of Abraham, he's suggesting that Jesus' work among the Jews is only the beginning. He's suggesting that Jesus' words and work and kingdom will bless every family, All the nations of the earth, right? But he doesn't just make this claim and drop it, right? Like, Matthew's not making this claim in a vacuum, okay? He's suggesting that... He structures... Okay, so, chapter 1, he makes this claim. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham. And he doesn't just start telling the story of Jesus, does he? He starts to record the ancestral line. The royal line of of David, right? And and my argument this morning, not just mine, but the argument of of most of the commentaries that I've read, my argument this morning is that that Matthew structures the entire record of Jesus' lineage. He includes additional details to prove that God's mission to rescue the nations begins to unfold as soon as that promise is made. That God makes that promise and He doesn't say, no, you're just going to have to wait. You're just going to have to wait a couple thousand years, right? No. He says, he says I'm going to save the nations in you. And you, Abraham, and your offspring, I'm going to save the nations. And then He just starts doing it, right? And then, in this structure, He's going to explain what the rescue of the nations is going to look like. All right? So, I want to open back up to Matthew 1, verses 2 through 17. Matthew 1, verses 2 through 17. We're not going to read the whole thing again, but I'm going to highlight a couple verses. Let's start in verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Interesting. Skip down a bit. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Okay? Odd. Keep going. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Okay? Interesting. And then, verse 7. Verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Okay, interesting. This is four women that are mentioned. There's something you need to know here. One, 
Ancient genealogies rarely mention women. Rarely. It is the exception to the rule by far. Something you should also know that is in Jewish literature, when women are mentioned, it's Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Four women are usually mentioned, but not these four. So Matthew violates convention by mentioning women in his genealogy in the first place. And that will strike readers as odd. Like, what? what? Why? Why mention this right now? But, but even further, by mentioning four women who no one would have expected. Right? If, if you're just giving a, a cursory glance at the history of Israel, nobody's going to Tamar first. And we're about to figure out why. Alright? Nobody. So what is he doing here? I think to answer that question, we have to draw near to these individual stories. I'm not going to read the actual text. We don't have enough time because we've got a lot to do this morning. But I want to summarize um, the stories of these four women for us. Okay? So... Tamar. Who is Tamar? Who is Tamar? If you know the story, you want to forget it almost immediately. (laughs) Tamar. All right. What you need to know about Tamar, this is in Genesis 38. What you need to know about Tamar is that she is a Canaanite woman. Almost everyone agrees that she's coming from the people of Canaan. And Judah, one of the sons of Jacob... The one, by the way, who was promised that a scepter would come from his line. Uh, Judah is uh, choosing a wife for his eldest son. Ur, or Er. Really appropriate name. (laughs) This guy was wicked. That's all we know about him. He was wicked and God killed him. And then Judah, knowing the right way to behave looks at Er's little brother and says, your son's line was stifled. We need an inheritance among the people of Israel. Therefore, take Tamar for your wife. And uh, Tamar's second husband, whose name was Onan, also was wicked if you want to know specifically how, you may read it. I don't think it's necessary. And it's also pretty gross. Um, Also wicked, so God kills him too. So all of a sudden, Judah's in an interesting situation because his eldest and his second son have been smoked by God. Right? Cut off by God. (laughs) And Judah begins to think that Tamar's the problem, which is crazy, by the way. We do this a lot. Um, so he has one more son and he's terrified. So he says, well, just wait, Tamar, until my youngest grows a little bit older and then I'll give you to him as a wife and you can continue the line of my eldest sons, right? And, but he doesn't. He just ignores her. He, allow, he allows her to, to um, withdraw to her father's house as a widow and he ignores her. He ignores his godly responsibility. Okay? So, Tamar dresses up like a prostitute 
And she seduces on some level. Actually, Judah's the actor. (laughs) So she doesn't seduce him. But he goes and he sees her dressed not in her widow garments. And he says, I want want to pay you for sex. And she says, what are you going to pay me? He says, I'll pay you a goat. She says, "Uh, just as to promise that you'll pay me back, um, I need your your cord and your signet and your staff. Okay? So he goes away later and uh, comes back with the goat and she's gone. She's wearing a veil the whole time. He has no idea who she is. Anyways, three months later, she's with child. Guess who's the first one to say, we need to burn her alive? Guess. Judah. Ah. And she says, I am pregnant by the person who owns this staff and this signet. Right? Big moment. And Judah says, you are more righteous than I. Judah's line and the scepter come through Tamar. Who is Tamar? She's a Canaanite. She's a prostitute. But she is redeemed. She is included in the covenant people of God and in the royal line of Christ. All right. Who is Rahab? Anybody remember the story of Rahab? I love the story of Rahab. All right? About 450 years later, the people of Israel are coming into the promised land. And they've sent spies into Jericho. And the spies stay at the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab pulls them aside and says, We are terrified of you because we know how powerful your God is. He's the true God. And because you're backed by the true God, I know what's going to happen to my people. So I'm going to shift my allegiance here. I'm with you guys. I'll hide you. I'll keep you safe from, these, uh, from the king and his, his men if you promise me that I won't be slaughtered with my people. Right? Rahab, who is she? She's a Canaanite. She's a prostitute. But she was included into the covenant people of God and she was included in the royal line of Christ. What about Ruth? Anyone remember Ruth? Uh, one of the uh, families of Bethlehem during a famine goes away. Uh, Naomi, the mother, uh, chooses for her son's Moabite women, which, by the way, way against the law. Way against the law. Moabites were restricted from the house of worship to ten generations. So Ruth is a Moabite. And then her husband dies. And she's left alone. And Naomi, desperate and hungry, decides to go back home to Israel. And then we have these beautiful words which are typically read in weddings. I don't understand why. Why? I mean, they're beautiful. But... um, but it was a, a daughter to her mother-in-law. Uh, she says, my God will be your God. Your people will be my people. Right? She, she 
grafts herself to Naomi. And in one of the more romantic stories I have ever read, not just in the Scriptures, she's redeemed by a faithful son named Boaz. Right? But how she's redeemed is interesting. Now, I'm going to go uh, on a limb here. Not everybody takes this interpretive uh, uh, approach to Ruth. But Naomi sees how Boaz has turned his affections towards Ruth. And she tells her to do something which I think everybody in Israel would have said is a bad idea. Right? She says, wait until he's had lots of food and wine. And then go into his tent while he's asleep and uncover him and lay with him at his feet. And there's a lot of debate over what that means and whether Ruth had intentions. I don't even think that matters. What matters is that's scandalous. That's scandalous, right? So who is Ruth? She's a Moabite. And she dove headlong because of some bad counsel by her mother-in-law into a scandalous scenario. And yet, Boaz, a faithful son of Israel, redeemed her. And she was included in the covenant. And she was included in the royal line of Christ. Right? And we all know who Bathsheba is. Okay. Why introduce Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah? Is this just like a like a jab at David for being a fool? I don't think so. As we all know Uriah, the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite. There's no textual evidence that Bathsheba was not a Hittite. <laughs> Bathsheba, whose story is murmured in shame in the telling of the history of the people of Israel. Bathsheba is the wife of the murdered Hittite who David slaughtered in order to take his bride. Right? Scandalous. Scandalous. We don't know how much was her doing and how much was his. Text doesn't go that far. But just like Ruth, we know that like scandal revolves around the story of Bathsheba. Right? Scandal revolves around the story of Bathsheba. And yet, Bathsheba was included in the covenant people of God, and she was included in the royal line of Christ. So my question is, why mention these four women specifically in Jesus' royal line? Why? Why go out of your way to mention these four? I think it's because Matthew's doing three things. I think it's because... I think Matthew's including these things for three reasons. One, the royal line of Jesus includes the nations because Jesus came to save the nations. I think that's why it's in there. Why, why include four Gentiles with scandalous backgrounds? Why? It's the nature of Christ's ministry. What does it mean to be the son of Abraham? What does it mean to be the son of Abraham? Look to the story of the son of Abraham. It means being surrendered by a father in sacrifice 
to a holy God to restore. Okay. The royal line of Jesus includes the nations because Jesus came to save the nations. Why else? I think it's because God's promise to rescue the nations is intentionally by the sovereign work of God being foreshadowed in the line of David and in the line of Christ. Sometimes I talk about the Bible and I say, this book is brilliant. This book is written so well. Okay, don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not some ingenuity of authors. History is written perfectly. Right? This book reflects the perfect sovereign work of God to foreshadow the nature of His redemption in the line of His Son. Amen? And then finally, I think that these women and not others are included because God chose vulnerable, broken, and lost representatives to model the the nature of the nation's future redemption in Jesus. What are the nations like? What were you like before Christ? You were lost. And you were broken and you had no hope. Have you thought that Three of these women that are mentioned are widows. Do you know what it was like to be a widow in these cultures? Desperation. Desperation. So I want to highlight one more thing before we shift gears a bit. This is a lesson in why not to ever skip over things in the Scriptures. This is a lesson into why not, why, why should you never ever gloss over something in the Scriptures. I get it. I get it. Like in, in the Pentateuch, in Chronicles, there's like eight chapters of just names. And it's like, ah. This is why. This here is why you never gloss over anything. Because Matthew introduces Jesus as the King to come and as the Son of David and as the Son of Abraham. He says, Jesus will fulfill God's promise. He says, Jesus will restore the kingdom of Israel. And he says, Jesus will rescue the nations. And how does he prove it? Of all things, a genealogy. A genealogy. Oh, you say Jesus is the Christ. Easy. Easy to say some random Joe is the Christ. Prove it. I can prove it. Give me a second. I can prove it because I can show you that he's the son of David. I can prove it because I can show you that he's the son of Abraham. Let's go. Bam, 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 bam. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Right? He's just demonstrating his claims. And he's doing it through something that we would find pretty boring. And sometimes that's how the Scriptures work. Sometimes you have David rushing towards Goliath, slinging hand, right? <laughs> and sometimes you got a genealogy. Okay. But Matthew doesn't stop making these claims about Jesus in the introduction. Matthew says, first verse that Jesus is the son of Abraham and he's always at work. The whole book, he's proving 
that Jesus is the hope of the nations. I'm not going to read these passages. I'm just going to give you blips. Give you two verse chunks. If you want, go read them later. Immediately after the genealogy, immediately after the genealogy and the birth of Christ, what do we see? The worship of the wise men from where? The east. We don't know where they're from, but they're not from Israel. Who's the first people to get the gravity of the birth of Christ? Gentiles. Listen to what they say. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. There's not a long line of people queued up to worship Jesus. Just a baby lying in a manger. The wise men come from the east. And Matthew further bolsters his claim that Jesus came to save the nations. Chapter 8. A Roman centurion comes to Jesus desperate. Pleads with him. Just say the word, Jesus, and my son will be healed. Listen to how Jesus responds. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Christ's work doesn't terminate only on Israel. It goes to the nations. Many will come from the east and the west and dine at the table. Chapter 15. I think this is my favorite story in Matthew. Jesus baits this Gentile who's desperate for a daughter to be healed and he baits her. It reminds me of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? His brothers come and he's just like pretending that he doesn't know them. And he's just sort of He's, he's teasing out the nature. He's fulfilling prophecy at the same time as teasing out the nature of their relationship, right? And Jesus is, I came for Israel, lady. Should I cast the food for children to dogs? She says, Certainly the dogs can have some crumbs from the table. And he bursts in joy. Oh woman, great is your faith. Oh woman, great is your faith. Can you imagine hearing that from the King of Kings? Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Praise Jesus. You want to be moved? Look for the moments where God and and Jesus burst out in joy. Look at how He humbles Himself before me. 
We have a two-dimensional portrait of God that we're always working with, and it's not enough. Some of the most beautiful manifestations of the love and mercy and grace of Christ are in moments like these. Oh, woman, how great is your faith. Anyways, I'm now preaching what I want to preach later, so I'll spare you. The parable of the wedding feast. The king said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore, where? To the main roads. (laughs) And invite to the wedding as many as you find. And then, the pinnacle. The very last verse of the book of Matthew. Jesus, having accomplished His work of redemption, He tells His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. The end. No. Praise God. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all, I, as, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the King we serve. I've got all the authority now. The first thing He tells His disciples, I've got all the authority now, so go to the nations. It's time. It's time. The son of Abraham has accomplished his work sacrificed by the loving father to reconcile the people. He's accomplished his work. The son of Abraham now has all authority, so go. What does the son of Abraham mean? It means that Jesus came to save the nations. Jesus came to save the nations. Matthew makes his claim in the first sentence of his book, and he's proving it every step of the way, all the way until the last sentence of his book. It would not be crazy if somebody said, what is Matthew about? If you responded, it's about Jesus rescuing the nations. So what? What does this mean for us? How do you respond to this information? So what? I can think of at least four ways that we should take this home and allow it to change our lives. One, dwell on God's mission. Dwell, meditate, revel in God's mission to rescue the nations. We just learned that the whole book of the Bible was written as a series of footnotes on God's promise to rescue and restore the world. Genesis 12, I'm coming. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12. 
And then that, just, that seed just grows and grows and grows. And you see it in, in Tamar's life, and you see it in Rahab's life, and you see it, you see it in Ruth's life, and you see it in, in Bathsheba's life, and you see it everywhere in the Old Testament. It is everywhere. God's rescue of the nations is all throughout the Bible. So go back and reread. You ever you have that moment? I, this happens to me all the time. You read a book, right? And like at the very end, there's this like twist, like, <gasps> like okay, I don't know what your gut instinct is, but as soon as I'm done, go back to the beginning and start like looking for the clues, <laughs> right? Happens in movies too. Actually, Trey talked about this not long ago. Do it. You got time. (laughs) Right? Go back. Read God's story about the rescue of the nations. Okay? Dwell on it. Meditate on it. Revel in it. Allow it to become one significant aspect of your DNA. Okay? Two. Pledge allegiance to the king of the nations. Now, I originally wrote this as praise the king of the nations. I want to dig a little deeper. Praise includes pledging allegiance. But in in our context, you can praise things without that thing consuming your life. Right? Right? Matthew was not exaggerating when he said that Jesus is the King of all kings. And that He was the coming Son of David. And he was the Son of Abraham. Matthew was not exaggerating. And you could walk away from this sermon and context saying, oh man, it's so, so cool that we've been saved. It's so cool that Jesus has done this great work. It's so cool that we're reconciled I'm just so grateful. Or, you could, in hope and gravity, envision his return. The king is coming back. And we are preparing for that return every moment. Amen? Bow your knee to the coming King, Jesus. May your allegiance to Him punctuate every moment of your life. Third, celebrate Jesus' finished work on behalf of the nations. We talk rightfully so. We talk so much about missions that when you hear the nations, you think, Those people. You are the nations. You are the nations. And when you hear that the son of Abraham carried the wood up the hill to be sacrificed by the good Father to a holy God, stop Reflect on the majesty of that parallel. Because I just described two stories. 
the story of Isaac and the story of Jesus. But when you reflect on the son carrying that wood up the hill to die, to reconcile to God all the nations, you're reflecting on your own story. It's your story. And it's done. I think a long time ago, a couple years ago, we were spending a lot of time on Saul. And a lot of the application was towards repentance. And Tara said to me, we don't rejoice enough. I think we should rejoice more. This is not an application to do anything. I'm not telling you to do anything right now except to reflect that the son of Abraham came past tense and died past tense and reconciled his people to God past tense. And that includes the nation's past tense. And you're present tense right now. And you get to bask in that glorious redemption. Amen? How, how do we draw near to the throne of grace with confidence? Because he has finished the good work. Okay. Lastly. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority has been, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Go, therefore. Go, therefore. Why should you go? Because Jesus, who, who promises not to leave our side, even to the end of the age... He's got all the authority in heaven and on earth. So go and make disciples of all nations. That's how. That's how we apply Matthew's claim that Jesus is the son of Abraham. We go. Go. You can go to the nations right now. Like I'm not saying start building a savings account and working toward a threshold after which you can quit your job and then start talking to the IMB to maybe be sent to uh, the, the deep South India. I'm not talking about that right now. Although, if the Lord's planting that seed, you can't ignore that. Okay? But the nations are here. All, a lot of the nations are here. Fort Worth's one of the biggest recipient communities of refugees. That's setting beside the point. That like We are the nations... So this call to go make disciples is a call for you to go next door. Amen? Remember God's mission to rescue the nations. Declare your allegiance to the King. Celebrate His finished work and go. Just go. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory 
and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.